Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. And it feels like I haven't been here in forever. If you don't know who I am, I'm Will Button. I am the co-host here. And joining me in the studio today is Jonathan Hall. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good, good. And then we have our guest today, Mike Wagner. How are you, Mike? I'm doing awesome. Thanks, Will. Hello, Jonathan. It's great to have you here because uh, today we're going to be talking about some bare metal stuff, right? Oh, I mean, I thought it was heavy metal. I thought we were doing all rock and roll today. We can do a little of both. I, I, oh, I always I, like, yeah. Oh, my bad. I thought bare metal was like a <laughs> subgenre of heavy metal. You know, because oh. you have like death metal and emo metal and goth metal. I thought bare metal was another. Okay. Is that where you play guitar naked? I think it is. I think it is. I'm, I'm sure that there's a Substack dedicated to it. And for everyone who's watching on YouTube, there was a Reddit group, but it's on strike right now. A community, a Substack, a YouTube channel. I, I'm sure <laughs> we have just scratched the surface of something amazing. <laughs> so, so what is bare metal? I mean, uh, we, we've all at least been involved in some way, but I, something is not forefront of our minds these days. What is it? Yeah, so a bare metal server is just a server um, that you generally run um, a single instance on. So it's it's a dedicated server. Okay, so uh, you're uh, at whoever is is uh, and and it's different things depending on what level you're approaching it. But from an infrastructure and operations perspective, we, we like working with um, enterprise architects, VPs of IT, the guys that are responsible for. Uh, creating the clouds, the private clouds, the hybrid clouds, whatever it may be. Um, so across the board, we work with all of the the big OEM players. So it's Dell, HP, um, Supermicro, Lenovo, Cisco. Um, and, you know, when whenever you talk about, um, you know, what's the cloud um, or what is uh, the edge, you know, the, the answer is truly it's just someone else's computer, right? That fabulous meme that's been around for a while now. Um, <clears throat> so somebody has to work with those servers. Somebody has to keep the BIOS up to date. Somebody has to keep the firmware of all the peripherals where they need them. And um, it was kind of a neglected segment, the, this whole idea of uh, low-level operations and working with bare metal, working with servers. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess, in a, a long-winded way, bare metal is just someone else's server. That's what I thought the cloud was. Yeah. Well, the cloud's based on bare metal. The cloud so. is made of metal. Wow. Yeah. Some dense atmosphere here. Isn't that amazing? And now, of course, they're reselling that as, you know, bare metal as a service, right? So you can mm-hmm. uh, you can actually get your servers uh, just the way you want them, sort of um, custom metal, if you will. Um, and wow, the premium on that is really amazing to witness. So what we've, what we've, recognize my CTO and I and co-founder Ian Evans. Um, years ago, we recognized that there was this almost everyone sort of getting drunk on public cloud and virtualization. And there's a uh, there's an efficiency gap. There's an architectural problem with it. And then there's also security and all sorts of other concerns kind of that we, we recognize that, you know, if we could find a way to make it easy to do DIY bare metal, 
so you could build your own clouds easily. Uh, that uh, you know, almost public cloud-like ease. And on, on your last episode, I, I enjoyed the GCP versus AWS uh, discussion. And I must say, I fall in the GCP camp as well. I seem to have kicked tires on AWS multiple times and just paid for something that didn't really lead to a lot. But um, GCP has always worked fairly efficiently. Um, so yeah, so it's it's the idea. The idea was to make something um, so simple, you know, just to create a UI that made it incredibly easy to uh, discover, provision, and maintain your your servers with, across multiple platforms. So any any hardware provider, any hardware manufacturer, um, through a single pane of glass. Right on. So there was um yeah. there was a thing came out by. Uh, uh, the guy who did Ruby on Rails DHH. I can't remember what the DHH stands for. But anyway, he was talking about moving his company from the cloud to bare metal and the savings that they were forecasting to to save that. And I think in his particular case, we talked about that on one of our previous episodes. It makes sense. Um, is, that the, is that the people that you're trying to target there as individuals who are trying to reduce trying to reduce their spend and gain more control over their environment yeah so that that's certainly um so cloud repatriation is the uh the the, the buzzword oh that's a day nice that. term i like isn't that, that nice <laughs> there's a lot of repatriating going on lately and we're working on most parts of it um <laughs> being the patriots that we are because we actually are I love america um i've traveled a fair amount and, and, and man the united states is awesome but um it's another story um, so, uh, cloud repatriation in particular, um, yes, there's, there's organizations that you reach a certain point in your cloud spend, um, where y- you can save a lot of money by bringing it in house. Um, there's a lot of factors related to that. So having the right skills, um, having the right tools in place, those are all really critical to make it happen. And, uh, we, we make that ridiculously simple. So yes, we've done um, repatriation, um, projects. Um, and, uh, you know, the results are always awesome. I mean, so far everything has worked out very well, I should say, uh, cause you know, I'm sure there's large projects out there and enterprises I could tell horror stories. Um, but, um, as long as you have the right tools in place and you don't try and bite off too much at once, it's similar to cloud migrations really. Right. And then, you know, everybody shoved stuff up into the cloud and, and they realized when they got the bill that maybe, maybe this was dangerous. Um, <laughs> and of course there's always, <laughs> The problem of um, um, shadow IT, right? With uh, you know everyone, you know, popping up uh, AWS or GCP instances, and you know nobody being able to really track what's out there. So, um, yeah, no, it's uh, we we definitely do some cloud repatriation. We do a fair amount of white space uh, where it's just okay. We have a new project. We know we want to do it um, in house, and a lot of hybrid as well. And then the edge stuff. That, that's the thing that um, you know really played in our favor was just the uh, expansion of the architecture and um, of, of where compute is being placed now because of the ever shrinking platforms you can put tremendous compute on. Um, so Moore's law and, and you know, the, uh, the, the really fun march of technology getting smaller and faster and, and uh, just more amazing and being a tech geek, it's just a blast to get to work with these small form factors and, uh, so we've done some really cool stuff with the DoD related to that, and uh, and some ISPs as well. Um, some edge, um, I guess I shouldn't call them some edge compute uh, players um, overall. So uh, 
yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, the space is, is exciting. There's, there's a lot happening in it. And, um, you know, being able to provide a platform that can make that easy um, has always been our overall vision. Right on. Whenever it comes to actual physical location of these servers, do you have um, do you have the space that you provide, or do you work with people with their existing spaces, or what's that part look like? Yeah, so we have we have both. Um, so we we work with a number of excuse me um, hosters, colos, um, data centers that um, we can partner with. And, and that's the other thing, right? We're almost exclusively a channel-led company. So we work with partners across the board. So SIs that do OpenShift implementations, um, SIs that may have um, a managed service practice or you know, have a Colo facility or Colo partner. We work with Colos directly. Um, so uh, yeah, a little bit, of, little bit of all of it. And um, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what the customer wants. That's the, the big thing, one of the big things that we recognize also back when we were sort of alpha testing uh, the product in our prior lives before we launched as a startup was that um, the customers, especially the, you know, the fortune 1000 set um, they've got, you know, they've been in place for a long time usually, and they have um, very particular tools that they like using. They have particular architectures that they like. We wanted to give them the freedom to choose and stay on whatever they were working with. We would provide guidance and um, you really are, are largely preference-free because we've, depending on the use case, it's um, it's definitely each implementation is is its own sort of beautiful snowflake. Um, you know, it's uh, it is what it is, and and um, a lot of the enterprises have done excellent work establishing the practices that they have in place. And um, this just, you know, we we let them keep the choices that they want, and then we come in with this low-level platform that makes uh, you know handling the the metal itself incredibly simple right on yeah i think that makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. yeah because like whenever you come to whenever you think about bare metal versus cloud um, in the cloud you choose from whatever product that cloud provider is offering you but in bare metal it's like hey here's a cpu some compute some memory go for it yeah yeah absolutely and and you know now custom chips and um GPUs and you know this uh, your Chat GPT episode was really cool. Um, I mean, you know, just all the things that are happening on the edge uh, or wherever with um, Chat GPT four and the other AI players, um, the demands around what we're trying to do from a compute perspective have just gone through the moon. Um, so you know, now it's a matter of okay, where can you get access to these advanced chipsets? Um, and where can you get access to the bare metal to do the crunching that you want it to do? So uh, it's a it's a it's a, a really fun space to be in right now. What are some of the biggest differences uh, when you're dealing in, uh, with bare metal from from your standpoint, not from the customer standpoint? Because uh, mm-hmm. I imagine you try to make as much of that transparent to the customer as possible. They get the advantages without the the extra t- toil of dealing. You know, they they're not physically installing hard drives and running mm-hmm. cables. From your perspective, though, managing this stuff, uh, what what are the differences between selling bare metal services and if you were just selling traditional cloud services? Okay, yeah. So, um, so we don't personally sell it a- as a service, if you if you will. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I, you know, what we've seen 
from an implementation perspective with regards to how we handle um, you know different hardware footprints. That's that's sort of its own beast for us, right? Um, what we do wasn't possible uh, five years ago because the standards weren't there. So these low-level hardware standards just um, have really become ubiquitous in the last two to three years. And in particular, the folks at the DMTF have done a great job, the Distributed Management Task Force that came out with the Redfish specification. So we'll get, get geeky for a second here. And you know these are the low-level guys that um, have put the um, open project in place that uh, essentially everyone has gotten behind that or OpenBMC, which is part of the Open Compute Project. Um, and uh, between those two, as well as a few other um, open standards that are out there and driving change, like um, SNIA has Swordfish, um, and there's a, a Yang to Redfish model as well. There's a number of open standard projects that are going on that are all sort of working as one now, if you will, with sort of Redfish mm -hmm. as the um, most underlying base foundation of an open API to write towards. Um, things have really progressed for us. So how we work with um, other, uh, with each OEM, that's kind of part of our secret sauce for sure. And uh, not everyone adheres to the Redfish specification perfectly, which is uh, which has always kind of been one of the problems with open standards. Um, <gasps> what? You know, oh my God. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> I thought only so, Microsoft had that problem. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, especially the guys in the uh, in the cellular space. Wow, are there war stories about that from an open standards perspective? But uh, we, we've done a fair amount in, um, um, in in sort of the radio access network space and the RAN space. They love their acronyms more than any other, the mm -hmm. telco guys. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, the open standards debacles that went on there were just, you know, and still are just kind of wild and, and crazy to, to witness. But um, finally, on, on uh, you know, the data center side, things have really, really come along in the last couple of years. So all the manufacturers now of the motherboards are on board. So all of the servers that go out you know, essentially will have a BMC that adheres to one of the other um, specifications or both. Um, and, um, and yeah, you can have at it and, and, you know, with some tweaking, with some with some customizations, um, you know, you can create that um single environment to work on any server um, from anywhere, you know? So that's really the cool thing. As long as there's a, um, a plug going into that server and a network connection, some type, um, we can do, it's, you know, it's, it's true out of band lights out management, right? So it's that, it's that uptick in service that you normally had to pay a lot for uh, if you wanted to do it in a proprietary way. Um, and then you'd have to learn each proprietary tool. And uh, we got rid of all that. Just one tool to rule them all, if you will. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. It's been a long time since I've dealt with bare metal. And um, to be honest, I, I haven't missed it. But it sounds like it sounds like it's come really a long way in terms of being able to do that out-of-band management and get the visibility of what's actually going on at the hardware level. And so this is a service that you provide as you take the hardware and you integrate all of that so that the, the customer has that visibility remotely to the physical hardware? Yeah. Yeah. It's a down, so our, it, we're a software tool, right? It's a, it kind of viewed as, um, you know, an out of band utility platform. Okay. So, and you can, you can download it um, and um, you know, check it out 30 days. Um, 
and uh, and then yeah, immediately start discovering your assets. Uh, so that's a th- you know the other big piece. It's, it does discovery, um, and then uh, we've got a service catalog that's built in, um, and you can you know um, provision whatever OS you want. You can go upstack with that and provision you know an OpenShift cluster um, or an Anthos cluster or Rancher cluster. We work with all of them. Um, so it's uh, it's a powerful tool, and and with great power comes great responsibility. So we take um, security very seriously, and we've air gapped multiple networks on the uh, internally within the product to make sure it's it's safe um, and uh, adheres to some NIST and uh, DoD certifications. So there's uh, you know across the board we kind of wanted to make this enterprise ready um, and address the big concerns that. Uh, uh, we knew our enterprise customers had um, going into this project, going into if whenever they want to take on a, a bare metal um, project, there's a, a number of things that, you know, Ian and I both had a lot of years working in data center environments, and he especially had to fix a lot of issues and, and architect and design things from the ground up. Um, so he took all that experience and kind of, um, you know, uh, Put it all into sort of the dream uh, INO product, the dream low-level uh, utility to um, make life easier for data center operators. So I'm, I'm going to show, possibly show my ignorance here. If not, it'll become evident by the end of the episode. Um, is uh, is SNMP still like a thing you mentioned the the auto discovery and a service discovery of the hardware? And I remember mm-hmm. long ago using SNMP to try and accomplish that. Is that still the pattern? Yeah. Well, you know, SNMP is still out there. Um, I think, you know, and this is something that Ian uh, could could answer uh, much better than me. But um, we've so the the key now is we're all uh, restful. So we switched to Rest, and and that's where obviously the industry right API and API for everything sort of idea, mm-hmm. um, and you know the um, SNMP is a protocol certainly. Um, is, is still out there. And I'm not sure how often we interact with it um, because the availability of all of the uh, pieces that we need are essentially there via REST and via, you know, a, a standardized API, the Redfish oh, specification, wow. the Redfish API. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a big shift in, in how uh, the underlying infrastructure can be discovered and, uh, um, and worked with. Right modern, on. the big modern shift. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about this problem in the past, but there was there was a ton of opportunity there waiting just in that level of, of abstraction. So, yeah, I can see the um, I can see the thought process and why you would why you would tackle this pro this problem and um, the potential improvements you can make on it. Yeah, it was really cool. It's one of those, um, when we showed it to customers um, initially, when we show it to them now, um, but even back, you know, when we were alphaing it, it, the response was consistent. You know, it's like, okay, cool. Let's get it into our lab. We like it. We'll buy it. There was no product, you know, and and the one, the bit of guidance that we got was we want it to be, you know, we want no um, sort of proprietary pieces in it at all. We just want it to be um, not beholden to any particular software stack or hardware provider. We just want it based on open. So that really re- required us to, to launch it as a startup. But, um, you know, as you're saying, 
you can you can picture it how how it's helpful. As soon as we showed it to uh, you know these VPs of IT, these enterprise architects, they're like, oh my god, okay, <laughs> okay, you did it. I had this idea. Yeah. So we we got to hear a lot of sort of anecdotal stuff about how you know uh, they they wish this was in place. If this was only there when I was at eBay, you know. Yeah, some uh, tons of stories, right? Um, oh, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, the crazy part about it's just somebody else's computer is it, it has become so um, simple to just fire up um, an instance, but at scale, you know, the, the bills are insane. And then you know, with the um, with the power of compute today, the cost savings as well as the security considerations, you know, AWS has been handing over a lot of information that companies didn't want handed over, you know? So there's security, specific uh, security profiles that we um, work with that, uh, as well as um, sort of, uh, that's the best way to put it. So high value targets, if you will. So we have some some mm-hmm. folks that are well-known and they want to make sure their stuff is secure. So, you know, another use case for having private cloud is just knowing that, um, you know, it can't be turned over to... Uh, you know, via subpoena, uh, without your approval. Right. So, um, yeah, there's, there's really interesting, you know, just tons of use cases out there, um, that, uh, that bring a need for this uh, sort of immediately recognizable. And, uh, yeah, the guys, you know, when they see it, they're just like, Oh God, you know, there it is finally. So, yeah, for sure. I think that's a lesson. A lot of companies are in the last couple of years are learning the hard way that, the the cloud providers and in addition to that SaaS providers were very convenient to onboard but they're also very willing and ready to turn over your data to anyone who asks for it <laughs> yeah yeah well it's another revenue stream i mean you know it's oh, stunning sure. right it's yeah if you don't check the paperwork carefully watch what you sign up for <laughs> uh click through contracts uh, are whew, you just never know um so yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. It's uh, it, we're in a uh, a wild and uh, a, a data we're in the you know the the data wild wild west, if you will. Anything they can grab, they will. What's a typical onboarding or implementation for your software look like? What's the barrier to entry? Yeah, um, it's it's a very low barrier to entry. We're um, about to. Uh, send out our um, and uh, our latest release will allow for um, you know single click download and um, installation. So we're really excited about that. We're probably three weeks away from getting that out. Um, so it, it's uh, it's really simple. You can you can download it and then we can walk you through sort of a white glove installation process to make sure everything's working right and that's you know done in a couple hours. Or um, we have an appliance as well. Um, and, um, we have a few customers that, you know, just said, cool, build us an appliance and ship it out. Um, so, uh, you know, we've got, uh, and you can pick the form factor on that as well. So we've got palm tops, we've got, you know, two use single use, you know, whatever sort of the use case calls for, we're as flexible as our customers need us to be. Cause, um, given the locations, the points of presence of some of these, um, sort of uh, compute environments um it can be you know uh, something that we need to be way about a pound and you know fit in the palm of your hand versus you know a, a two you you know pretty heavy horsepower um a couple of servers 
So, <clears throat> so yeah, it's uh, but overall the software itself is very easy to download and to uh, and to load. And we're like I said, just a couple weeks away from um, making it a, a, a single button build. Right on. So that should be about the time this episode releases. What's your website? Nice. Yeah, it's uh, www.metify.io. So I'm curious, uh, what types of clients, I, I don't want you to tell us names unless mm-hmm. you have agreements that allow you to do that, um, but like what kinds of clients and what kinds of workloads is this ideal for? Like, And the second part of the question is, who should not do this? Mm. Um, so yeah, that's it's a fun one for us because... Um, well, okay, so a number of our customers, we have um, obviously NDAs in place with, and they don't, you know, like us, they feel there's a competitive advantage related to sure. how and who and where and all that good stuff. They are implementing Mojo as part of their architecture. Um, having said that, um, Major League Baseball published a really cool article, um, as well as in their technology blog about how they use Mojo Platform to power all of the uh, baseball uh, stadiums in North America. Um, so as far as use cases go, this is kind of the perfect hybrid edge use case that has, um, GPU, uh, dependencies and, um, hybrid, um, in that, uh, uh, 7.2 terabytes of data per game are then uploaded into, um, GCP. Um, and it's a Anthos push button Anthos implementation. Um, so yeah, this is uh, you know what, from a use case perspective, we did not um, uh, think Major League Baseball was going to be. We didn't envision them as a customer, but it makes sense, right? And when you're as low level as we are, it's almost like asking Intel, you know, what's your perfect customer? You know, mm-hmm. well, it's pretty much anyone that does compute at scale um, and has the need to you know, access these servers and make sure that the BIOS is up to date, uh, make sure that, you know, any zero day vulnerabilities can be taken care of without having to fly in and do um, a thumb drive uh, shuffle. Um, or as uh, Kevin Backman from Major League Baseball calls it, the hand jam, um, you know, and that's, uh, you know, just just travel and maintenance expenses on servers because it is um, what underlies private clouds, public clouds, you know, it's a significant uh, budget hit um so yeah which is another reason why public cloud was as popular is as popular as it as it is because you know okay well you don't have to worry about that right well you know similarly with this it takes away the concern of having to fly somebody in and update the bios or update a firmware um and uh you know remotely monitor exactly the health of that system or even create a snapshot and then make sure from a governance perspective that there's no configuration drift on that server versus the rest of the um, servers in the field. So, we, you know, we've got customers with thousands of thousands of servers and with configuration drift, you know, something can happen, right? The guys in the labs push out a, an update and um, it's possible that uh, if they're not exactly aware of the BIOS levels and uh, what is in those, what chipsets are in those servers, that it could cause something to go down. And, um, you know, bricking a, a subnet, bricking a, um, a major portion of a, a company's intranet is a, is a bad thing. So, yeah, we make that uh, a lot more governable and uh, uh, transparent to the, uh, to the guys that need to know that information. 
that's crazy. I hadn't even thought about that use case, but like baseball stadiums, you know, where they have a huge compute infrastructure just in the building there and financial as well, like bank networks that have networks of ATMs. I mean, we've yeah. all seen the um, the blue screens of death from an ATM that's still running Windows XP and stuff like that. And it seems like this would be a, a <laughs> would fall into your use case of things to manage. Yeah, for sure. No, and we're working with um, a few banks. We're just, you know, scratching the surface on on retail. We think that's actually going to be one of our um, largest verticals. Um, and, um, you know, surprisingly, we're actually not in production yet with any major uh, retail player. Um, well, it depends on how you consider MLB, but um, uh, in terms of some of the use cases that we are uh, in place for them. But um, yeah, it's you're absolutely right. It, it's one of those things where, in fact, early on in my networking career at IBM, um, that was, I, I mean, I had to go around and do uh, an updating, uh, a number of updates uh, for a, a bank and uh, flew around the country, you know, with a, a set of uh, a set of disks and a hard drive. And, you know, I mean, it was it was unbelievable, you know, and you, now you know, all that entire uh, month-long process, you know, where I was flying around from city to city could easily be done. Um, and we have done it from a single location and, and, and doing all of the same functions I had to do, which was, you know, cold booting and, um, you know, formatting and all the things, you know, the new OS loads and the BIOS updates and all of those things, you know. So it, it is really cool to see... Um, the advancement of where where we are now, um, and um, all of the cost optimization, as well as you know the architecture optimizations then that can occur uh, because of it. Because that's the, the other big piece of this, and this is you know adventures in DevOpsy, um, Kubernetes, and um, containerization in general, right? Uh, dramatically changed how and you know what the optimal state of applications is to operate in. Um, and um, so, you know, where VMs are heavy and actually, you know, performance reductive, you can get containers on bare metal and, and really have a, a screaming application um, with, you know, outstanding security. Uh, and um, so, yeah, that, that the, the use case piece um, as it pertains to containers and, um, you know, applications and how they're presented uh, and architecturally to developers, um, you know, that, that has really driven a lot of this as well. Yeah, I remember something similar back pre-Y2K. I was working in the telco space and uh, same thing, flew all around the country, updating a bunch of telephone systems for Y2K, carrying the floppy disk with me, upgrading uh -huh. them. You said and, Y2K. Uh, I did, oh, I did. <laughs> and I'm willing to bet that a significant percentage of those systems I updated for Y2K, that's probably the last time that they were updated because of how big of a hassle that was. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, telco is, we, we love the space and it is changing quickly, which is a, you know, kind of a, a oxymoron to even say, because nothing in telco changes quickly. Um, <laughs> their approval process can take years. Um, but, um, but yeah, those van rolls. And, um, you know, what's funny is uh, I'd be willing to guess that a number of folks, um, Gen Z's 
they have no idea what Y2K is. You might have to do a, uh, a, a postscript on this uh, podcast <laughs> Fair point. So, to explain what, to, what, what Y2K was. We're a bunch of old guys. Yeah, man. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, there is a, the, the need, which is you know, just amazing from a, um, the amount of van rolls that still have to occur. Um, the amount of uh, flights that still have to occur. So there's a green element to this, you know, um, as well. It's like, and, and then we do have a green data solution. We're working like with lead compliant um, certifications and, uh, and you know, um, lowering carbon footprint as much as possible through the um, new um, schemas that are being put in place through the Redfish. Um, so you can monitor thermals, monitor uh, temperature in, in, in rows and in racks and in chassis. So all the cool new sensor stuff that's coming as well. Um, we've got uh, a really cool uh, green data center use case um, that we've we've built out as well. So yeah, there's the number of um, you know uh, very pertinent problems that never got solved, um, but the tools are there. It's kind of like the ring doorbell guy. You know, it's like hey, just if you put a few of these things together, you've got a pretty cool solution. You know, um, and it's kind of kind of similar to that, except. Uh, it also took open standards and and everyone to play nice for it to really happen. For sure, you mentioned that um, you mentioned the standards have come a long ways. Are you seeing a lot of um, a lot of enthusiasm? Because it's one thing, you know, everyone's like, "Oh, okay, we'll support this," but then to be enthusiastic, where they're like, "No, we're really going to prioritize this." Are the hardware manufacturers and the OEMs really seeing the value of what you're doing here? Absolutely. Um, yeah, across the board and, and it's a sort well, so it's a survival thing. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you have to evolve, you have to change with the times or it's not going to work out. And the way we had this, I was at Red Hat prior to, uh, um, launching, um, Metify. And there's a saying, if, if you don't like change, you're going to hate extinction. Um, you know, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, uh, you know, evolve. You have to evolve, right? And um, so the traditional uh, big box manufacturers, um, you know, the, the proprietary game, it, they, there's a lot of value in those boxes. There's a lot of value in those servers. However, um, locking it in and, and keeping the software uh, discovery, provisioning, lights out management, if you will, of those servers, that was always a big revenue stream. And still is. Um, so we recognize that. And, and there is value there. Now, the issue comes in with the proliferation of white boxes and the desire just to have rather simple compute and, you know, the, the cheapness of that to be able to just chuck the server and pop in a new one. Um, that's what really drove the dynamic change that's occurring now. <clears throat> and that's, you know, the technology commoditization curve eventually gets every proprietary, you know, special player, if you will, right? It's just a matter of time before someone can do it uh, a little less expensively. So how do you, you know, continue creating value around those um, platforms and, um, and around your brand? Um, and, and I will say that, the, you know, HP and Dell and um, Supermicro and Lenovo and Cisco, they've done a great job doing that. You know, these guys are, um, they have big R&D arms um, groups, and they are always innovating and trying to make things um, better. And, um, uh, easier for their for their um, for their base, um, and so this is it's not you know we're not trying to um, take over 
all hardware. This is, you know, just where it makes sense and where customers are um, wanting to have a heterogeneous environment and a, a simpler method to, um, to access that across different uh, vendors. So, um, so yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a fun ride so far. I'll bet. How long have y'all been in business? Um, just three years now. Just three okay, years. right on. Yeah. So that, and, and, you know, so I guess to wrap up the enthusiasm from the players was, it's been from the start. So HP, Dell, um, and I think Lenovo or no, Supermicro, they were on the, uh, DMTF, the, the Redfish forums board from the beginning. So it's not like the, you know, the board went after this by themselves. You know, they had the, the biggest guys on board with them. Um, and you know, the communities that are associated, um, around Redfish are huge and they've got a, annual user conference that's growing every year and, you know, all those things to make it happen. Same with OpenBMC, you know, really strong following community growth. Uh, everyone gets that, um, you know, the time has come to um, open these things up and, and allow customers and uh, um, folks using the hardware to uh, manage it as, as kind of in the way that they want to, in the way that's most efficient for their organization. Yeah, I think that's a great I think this whole conversation is a great aspect of DevOps to bring up because it's one that doesn't get a lot of attention. You know, we talk a lot about cloud and and Kubernetes and Agile and, and stuff like that. But um, there is this whole bare metal component to everything. It's just abstracted away. But now we're also seeing companies as we mentioned earlier in the episode, they're circling back around and leaving the cloud and going back to bare metal. So I think for anyone who's starting or interested in pursuing their DevOps career, this is definitely an area that should pique your interest and open up potential opportunities for you. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've kind of, um, you know, from a programmer, so there's kind of the top-down approach to, you know, people finding out about our tool that way where they're like, okay, so, if um, this tool is in place, I can, um, yeah, we, we've got our back. So um, as a developer, you can be given the, uh, a pool of servers and you, uh, and a, you know, a whole grouping of um, kickstarts or um, runtimes that you can load through our service catalog. Um, and, you know, it empowers you to do your job faster, right? If you need to tear down and rebuild different environments, um, you can do it a hell of a lot faster with a simple tool. Instead of putting in a request to IT to have a server built that has XYZ, and then six months later, you know, I mean, and that's some of the things, God, you know, so, and that's the, so the funny thing about DevOps, it's DevOps is in the name, right? And it's right. the forgotten, <laughs> the forgotten redheaded stepchild of DevOps operations. It's required to, to make the development happen. Um, and, um, you know, that's where beyond, uh, you know, uh, beyond the, uh, all the, the infrastructure geeks that are, you know, actually working with the metal and, and working with the servers and having to somehow surface those and make them available to their developers. Um, this, it can come from both sides, right? So, you know, obviously the, the, the value from an IT operations perspective is extremely evident, but it's also, um, and we're, you know, we're working with, with Red Hat as an example, and we're going to be going to a few Red Hat user group meetings, um, you know, to make it obvious to the uh, developers as well that if it's, and you know, developer, um, 
could see the value in it just as much as the guy in, in operations because it does make things much faster, much easier. So we're putting the ops back in DevOps, making the ops nice. One of the very first guests I had on my tiny DevOps podcast uh, a couple of years ago by now, uh, the, the topic was uh, that basically that a lot of people forget to pay attention to some of that ops stuff. And, and, he, and, and my guest was specifically talking about even if you're doing everything in the cloud, everything, you're never doing everything in the cloud or almost never. I mean, you're, you're, there's, a, there's a router in your, or a switch in your office <laughs> that probably needs to have the firmware updated every now and then or bad things are going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's, there's so much. I mean, every, everything virtual is built on something physical. Yes. Uh, as far as we know, maybe at some, some quantum level, maybe consciousness not. But as far as our, our hardware is concerned, <laughs> everything, everything virtual is built on something physical. And we forget that. And yeah. we just kind of assume that it, it's just magic and it works. And I don't need to worry about the BIOS update on my, on my laptop. I don't need to worry about the firmware and my routers. I don't need to worry. And, you know, a lot of people even forget about just, you know, what base image is my Docker container built on top of? You know, there's there's so much below yep. what we deal with that we forget about, and that's really dangerous. It is massively dangerous, and we've seen those hits happen. Um, you know, uh, it's um, one of those things where, well, as an example, you know, we had a, a financial services company um, that you know they were open about the issues that they were having, and and they had to put off a BIOS update, and it and it came back to bite them and cost them millions. Um, because they simply didn't have the bandwidth to get the people in the field to take the servers down to do the BIOS update and, and cycle everything. Um, so that's the other part of this. Um, there's a a de-risking um, a de-risking value to bringing on a, a tool like ours, like Mojo Platform, that um, allows you to do the things you've been putting off and allows you to get a, a, a real standardized um, and transparent infrastructure uh, snapshot, if you will, that um, is updated in real time. So, you know, it just gives you that, that visibility um, and ease of, of, of use that's been lacking um, for years and years. So, so yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, um, it's all, it's, it's just somebody else's computer. The question is, you know, how are they updating it? How are they doing the things that should be done, that need to be done to keep it secure um, and to keep it from breaking? Mm-hmm. And that's that. those are the two big things that we, we love fixing. Now, the, the other really fun part of this from an infrastructure perspective, so, you know, you picture, okay, there's a router somewhere. There's, there's uh, uh, how, do you, how do you access that? Or there is a, a group of servers somewhere from an enterprise perspective. It's almost all hybrid, right? There's very few... Um, enterprises that are sort of in the fortune uh, you know, 500 of, of any real size that uh, are all in the cloud. Um, and then there's the, the, the people that manage that develop, especially the servers, it, it's this very uh, uh, dangerous thing because from a knowledge transfer perspective, right? Knowledge management, they hold the keys to the castle. They could do, they could, you know, if you get them upset, uh, the danger is right there for them to do some incredible damage. Um, so, and that's the other part of de-risking that we do here. It really is a knowledge management platform in the sense that 
It makes um, all of the day-to-day operational things very easy, understandable, and documented. So you can see exactly what it takes um, and you know exactly what's in the field to do these BIOS updates, to do, you know, to know exactly what firmware and chip levels um, the different uh, uh, different servers are on, routers, switches. So yeah, that's uh, that's another big piece of this is um, de-risking from a knowledge management perspective. So um, everything isn't dependent on one guy that knows how all your servers are set up and how all the routers um, and how the networks are run, right? So um, one or two guys. So yeah, this is... Uh, uh, an important part of um, change management, governance, and um, de-risking, you know, having your own infrastructure again. Because it never fails. And I and I can say this, having been that guy, that guy is usually pretty grumpy and sometimes difficult to get <laughs> info out of. <laughs> it, it, yeah, you are, uh, you are proceeding at your, your own risk and the company's risk, right? Because um, you're right, that, that guy, you know, with great power, um, you know, you, you, they can occasionally have, uh, great egos. Um, and, uh, you know, and then to their, um, I guess in their corner for a minute, I mean, you know, there's a lot that's put on those guys and sometimes it, you know, they get stretched to the edge and, um, getting a tool like this in place makes their life a hell of a lot easier. And then yeah, as an, as an, uh, director of IT or, you know, an owner, uh, and this is the thing, right? It's it's from any. We work well with companies. We have we're installed in a footprint as small as five servers, because we're you know, very inexpensive. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it just provides uh, um, ease of mind and uh, you know true resiliency around um, knowledge management when it comes to you know making sure that if if one guy goes on vacation or quits, that you're not just dead in the water. Or yeah. scrambling like hell. Yeah. Yeah, because in many instances, that person, no one else in the company realizes the burden that they're carrying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it's that, uh, what do they call it? The hit by a bus scenario, right? Right. If, um, yeah, if that dude gets hit by a bus, what, uh, you know, what, what about tomorrow? You know, who's going to keep things working? Who knows what levels things are at? Yeah. And that's, sure. that's yeah. the other part. From an auditing perspective, uh, it just saves months and months of field work and, and digging to, um, to assist with, uh, you know, insurance, banks, HIPAA, healthcare, you know, across the board. There's just a number of um, sectors that, uh, business sectors that require, you know, very specific audit, auditing to be put in place. And we have a reporting tool that's uh, built into Mojo Platform as well that makes it... Uh, Really, really simple. So, kind of covered a lot of bases with with the tool when uh, you know Ian kind of dealt with it all, um, and uh, uh, and then we, with a ton of feedback too from you know these these enterprise customers to build sort of the dream tool for them. What what do they need? Um, and and the best part about being um, uh, REST based and sort of modern is that as the uh, new requisites and we help guide um, the direction of that as well um, for the specifications get brought into the DMTF or open BMC. Um, as soon as those, uh, those, those new schemas are ratified and you know, that uh, it becomes available for uh, and published through the DMTF or even before sometimes, you know, we'll do custom work. 
um, we can bring that into the tool and make it available to everybody. So it's a, it's a really cool thing because that's it's as far as refactoring the code, there's very little that has to happen. It's just, you know, pointing to a new um, uh, schema within the API itself. So oh, wow. It, yeah, yeah. So you can that's just onboard. So cool. Yeah, onboard new functionality, onboard new features really quickly. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, and then, yeah, they're getting down into the DCIM space as well, like I said, around, you know, thermals and heat and everything else. So it's really just keeps on expanding. The use cases keep on expanding and, and then the power of open, having uh, all that R&D kind of being handled by your customers, by the communities, by all the people feeding into these projects, makes life, it is, you can't compete with that. You know, you can't compete with the, you know, literally billions of dollars essentially being poured in in man hours and development from an R&D perspective, um, having those open standards in place. Wow, this has just been eye-opening for me. Like having done data center work in the past, now to have all of those things that I hated about working in a data center just be wrapped up into to a single tool to give you visibility into like the status of the hardware and what's the firmware level and, and just that whole visibility. This, this takes a huge... Um, burden off of the the consideration and the workload of thinking about or pursuing a bare metal infrastructure thanks yeah yeah that's a goal i mean you know no more having to go up and hit f5 and do all that low level madness and, <laughs> or f12 right uh get the bios going yeah you know we we got it all built into the tool and um automated it so yeah, it's uh, it's a big step. It's it's exciting, and you know the the best part is when when the customers see it, and they recognize behind their own firewall. Oh wow, I, I see exactly what this is going to save us. You know that moment it just never gets old because you know the, the reactions are, um, just awesome. You know to see it. and then and you know when it get in, gets implemented and you know you see it in in. Uh, working for them and, and doing all the things that they wanted to do. It's just a very fulfilling, very rewarding part of, uh, part of, uh, you know, having a startup for sure, having a software product. Yeah. That's just mind blowing. So you mentioned a couple of times your service catalog. What, um, and I, I would imagine you have like in your service catalog, like here's the latest firmware and BIOS updates for these different things. But then you also man mentioned OS management as well from a developer's perspective. So what does your software catalog offer at that higher level for users of the, the infrastructure? Yeah, so the service catalog has the more complex builds that would come after sort of a standard provisioning um, and, and, and runtime is put in place, if you will. So and that's um, you can do that either for us through templating, YAML, um, or you can do it via GUI, you know, so we have both, right? You can do it either in, you know, sort of a mass um, gold image, if you will, gold uh, build um, and, uh, and, and really powered by Ansible for the most part. Um, but okay. we work with any of them. Um, and, uh, and then, the, I'm sorry, the question, the second part of that question was, just uh, like types of things that are in the service catalog ah, like, sort of, from yes, a developer sorry. perspective. Gotcha. Yes. And then, so that's the, um, so say open an OpenShift cluster on ESXi, something like yeah. that, right? So we've got that 
dropped in, built out in the catalog, whatever your um, environment requires. So in, and virtualiza- in virtualization, we're great. We work, you know, we're a VMware partner. We work with Tanzu, ESXi. That's a very common build for us. Um, but again, you know, the, we're, we're beneath that. So we're good with that. You know, if, it's, if, if uh, a virtualized environment is what um, is optimal for your applications and for that particular use case, great. No, no problem. So yeah, it's the, uh, it's the, up, it's the upstack um, associated builds themselves that we can add service catalog elements for. Gotcha. And you said it's all primarily using Ansible. So literally anything you can build with Ansible can become a product in the service catalog. That's right. Yep. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah, man. Fun times. indeed. So I remember, here's a little anecdote from my time in the data center. Back in the day. Um, yeah, back in the day. I was so proud of myself that I went on eBay and bought a Portmaster 2. Either of you know what that is? Wow. Nope. Uh, <laughs> no. So, so this, was, this was 2005 or so. Portmaster 2s were probably in their heyday in 1995. <laughs> uh, the, the, port, the, the Portmaster 3, I remember using when, when I was at my, my first real job out of high school. It was a dial-up ISP. The Portmaster 3 was a, a Lucent uh, piece of equipment. I think it was Lucent. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was bought by Lucent. But it, you'd plug a T1 into it and it would provide you know, dial-up access, 56K dial-up access on that provision T1. Portmaster 3 predated that. So it was a it was an expandable box with, I think, up to 30 RS-232 ports on it. Oh, wow. nice. Um, or you could get an ISDN module, but that's not what I cared about. So I bought this Portmaster 2. I think I had 10 ports, the, the one I bought on eBay. And that was my KVM switch for these <laughs> servers sitting a four-hour four drive away. Wow. So I set up Linux on the serial console so I could do almost everything I needed yeah, with this now it it wasn't really you know managed. It was just a serial console. <laughs> wow! And some of our BIOSes supported serial consoles on the uh, from the boot screen. That was the best. We had some old servers that didn't have that. So as long as Linux would boot to the kernel, mm-hmm. we were golden. But whenever Linux failed to boot for some reason, corrupted disk or a bad upgrade or whatever, we had to hop in the car, drive three to four hours to the data center, and, and get that thing running again. Man, that is a, that's a setup. That is a, that's a <laughs> hell of a way to do it. Yeah. We, we, we had somebody at the company trying to convince us to set up an IP KVM, uh, you know, which, which would admittedly be better. Because yeah. then you have direct access to the video signal and the keyboard. So, you know, anything you can do with a keyboard monitor, you can do. And, so it gives you a little bit more. But I was like, yeah, that, that was, I don't remember, several hundred or thousand dollars at the time. Yeah. Versus this like $20 eBay purchase that gave us like 98.6% of the functionality. <laughs> and, and what's funny is that I hear... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so what percentage? Oh, we you... had 115K, man. I mean, it, it was, it was plugged into, plugged into something fast. Yeah. Screamer. Well, so um, what percentage of people do you think when you're saying KVM, I, I'm betting they're thinking, <laughs> <laughs> they're thinking virtualization. Um, yeah, probably but, worth clarifying I the definition of KVM. There's a keyboard video monitor. What does it stand for? Keyboard, keyboard video monitor? Video. Keyboard video mouse. Yes, that's what it was. Yes. 
keyboard yeah. video mouse. Boom. So, I mean, pe- people use those, you know, especially gamers will use those if you want to switch between two. If you have, you have a, a, a Mac and a Windows yeah. PC or something, you want to switch between the same monitor. That's what I'm talking about for anybody listening. I'm talking about that switch. So you can have multiple computers hooked up to a single keyboard, monitor, and mouse. Yeah. So I had these 10 serial ports connected to my 10 servers, whatever number of servers they were. And I could telnet into that Portmaster 2. And from there, I could connect to any one of those uh, those 10 or so servers. Very cool. That's a, that's a, that's a very wicked setup for the day. <laughs> I love that, that adjective for it. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. Right on. So uh, we're approaching an hour here. Is there anything else that we should talk about? We should talk about the name Mojo. That's a super cool name. Where did that come from? You, you know, um, so Metify is a, is a portmanteau of metal simplified and Mojo, um, Mojo platform was, it just, it was like magic, you know? So when it came to, and, and this kind of goes back sort of that Mojo, Mojo magic thing, um, it, it just get your Mojo back, you know, Austin Powers right. can't help but be a fan there. <laughs> um, it just kind of goes into that, right? The, the magic of doing metal, um, very easily behind your own firewall, uh, DIY, save a bunch of money. It's like, it's like magic. So yeah, Mojo is kind of a, an amalgamation of all those things, if you will. Uh, when I asked that question, I was hoping that it was going to lead to an Austin Powers reference. So it did. <laughs> disappoint. <laughs> yeah, man. Come on. Austin Powers. Now that, that guy needs to make a comeback. The world needs Austin. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For <sure>. yeah. <laughs> Simpler times. Yeah. Cool. Anything else that we should uh, we should talk about, or you'd like to share with us about Metify or getting your mojo back? Yeah, man. No, I think that pretty much covers. <laughs> uh, we covered a lot of bases. You know, it's a it's a, an amazing tool, and um, like I said, you know, if you're a, a if you have from five to five hundred thousand, five million, five million server <laughs> um, you, you gotta do the pinky thing <laughs> that's right that hurts uh freaking laser beams attached to their head they can do an amazing thing and we can connect to those lasers and remotely shoot those for you so you know <laughs> got you covered on every front you yeah, can check it out the firmware on the lasers mounted to your shark heads using the that's, mojo platform that's right that's right we're dr evil is actually a big customer so nice him and, and his team. <laughs> right on. So let's uh, move on to picks. Jonathan, putting you on the spot. Have you got a pick for us? Oh, I do. I'm going to, I'm going to do some shameless self-promotion today. Nice. Um, and I'm going to pick my new podcast. Which we're about to do episode number 20. It's called cup of go. It's all about what's new that this week in the Golang community. And we've got our first uh, corporate sponsor recently, so that's an exciting milestone. So we're doing really well. We have we have swag. If you want a cute little coffee cup or a sticker or a wireless charger with our new logo on it, check it out. Go to cupago.dev. You can uh, find all the episodes there and find us on social media. Uh, we have an active Slack uh, channel on the Gopher Slack too, so that's a fun place to hang out. So that's my pick for the week. Right on. Yeah, you've been cranking out the content there. I keep seeing... Uh seeing new episodes coming out all the time. So good job on that. Yeah. Thanks. All right, Mike, putting you on the spot next. What, what have you got for us for a pick? Wow. Um, 
so god um so i'm a physics geek so i'll just uh, i'll give you one of um one of many cool um physics uh topics that i love um check out uh john stuart bell um he was the guy who actually created bell's inequality which helped prove uh non-local uh influence instant non-local influence um and sort of uh, did manage to prove Einstein wrong about one thing. So if you want to see the guy who proved Einstein wrong about, uh, about a big thing, uh, namely, uh, general world, no, I'm sorry, distance, uh, relativity. Right? Um, and you know, the idea that, uh, everything has to be, um, there has to be a local influence. He's the guy to, to check out John Stuart Bell. So he's, uh, very cool, um, physics guy who, uh, essentially, he, he, and the uh, Nobel Prize in Physics actually went to the guys that uh, proved his inequality. Um, so the three three guys last year who re- actually received the Nobel Prize in Physics. But uh, yeah, John Stuart Bell, man, the guy's amazing, and he didn't seem to get his props. Nobody knows who he is, but he's incredible. He was right on. That's cool. I'll definitely check that out because I'm I'm a big physics geek myself. Um, going all the way back to my first job out of high school. I joined the Navy and became a nuclear engineer. So just have always been fascinated by physics and all the different aspects of it. Cool. So my pick, because you mentioned guitars earlier and you've got the guitars in the background, I'm going to show yeah. off my Schecter guitar here. And Woo! it's got the Sustainiac pickup on it. So if you play guitar and you've never had a Sustainiac pickup, it's been the most fun I've had in decades playing guitar. And uh, so the Sustainiac will does kind of what the name implies. You can hit a note and then it just continues to use the harmonics to keep that note ringing out forever. So you can play um, like the blues and the, the um, like Zach Wild, Ozzy Osbourne type stuff where they just hit those squealing nice. mar- harmonics and just let them scream on forever and get that simulated feedback without having to crank your amp up to 11 although you're probably <laughs> going to want to do that anyway so yeah, yeah um sustainiac pickups it's my pick for the week awesome i haven't had any pickups since i got married symbol ah. <laughs> <laughs> right and and that's a good are you gonna thing pl- are you gonna play it are you gonna play it for us well i see you holding the guitar there we can it's not plugged in but um Put me on a spot uh, here. We'll do a little little Slayer riff for you. Oh yeah. Awesome. Next time you got to yeah. plug that puppy in and, and give us some distortion and make that thing come right. alive with Sustaniac happening. Right, because that that clearly did not do Slayer any justice. But um, that's what we'll go with for this <laughs> All right. episode. We're hoping you see it next time. Well, I could hear the tight right. cording. It was tough. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, thank you everyone for listening and we will see y'all in the next episode.